Hi, I'm Nicole Haney. I'm a business coach who helps goal-driven business owners build the life and business of their dreams. In this podcast, I share tactical advice on building your business, mindset tips, and inspiring interviews to help you build your business and change your life. This is the Goals and Gratitude Podcast. Okay, so thank you so much, Simone and Nadia, for being on the show today. Uh, Just to get started, for those who don't know you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and why you decided to start Marlo. Sure. Well, thanks so much, Nicole, for having us on the podcast. Me and Simone are so excited. We're both two of the co-founders at Marlo, and we all met at the Ivy Business School at Western. And that's actually where Marlo started. So we started it in our last year during an entrepreneurship capstone course. And I remember our professors told us to find a problem that we were passionate about solving. And we were going about our week and thinking about different problems that we were experiencing. And one thing that stood out was menstruation and the space in general. And I remember that one of our co-founders had opened up and shared that she's always experienced pain when inserting tampons. And growing up, she was a swimmer and she always felt really limited when she would have to basically pause on life when on her period because she didn't have products that worked for her. And she spoke to us and shared that many people around her on her team and her life were also going through similar things. And so after hearing her story, we got super interested and thought maybe that this could be a problem we tried to solve. And we started speaking to people and learned that one in three people experienced dryness or pain inserting tampons. And so it really felt like a big problem. And then I remember our co-founder had gone to the doctor to see if there was anything she could do about it. And the doctor told her to spit on the tampon to make it easier. And that exact same shock factor just drew us in. We knew there had to be a better solution out there. We got to experimenting and trying different solutions like coconut oil, Vaseline, very at-home kitchen experiments to just prototype and see what could work before landing on the idea of lubricant. And that was really when we knew we had something. This is seemed like a pretty obvious solution, yet no one had thought of it. And so we went through Health Canada approvals. We started testing, found some incredible manufacturing partners, and actually brought this product to market. And so it's been on the market for about a year now. And in addition to having our product, our big vision is how can we build an entire inclusive and community-driven space around menstrual wellness? Because it's something that 50% of the population experiences, and yet we're so nervous to talk about it. We're always, you know, nervous to go check out at shoppers or put in our sleeve. And so our goal is let's not just put out this product, but let's build an entire community around our brand and a safe space for people to ask the questions that they've always wanted to know the answers to. Wow. That's an incredible story as to how you guys got started. And I can't believe that the advice out there is to spit on your tampons. Like that can't be the best way to do this. So that's, that's crazy. I'm glad you guys have created a better solution. Um, Simone, do you want to introduce yourself as well? And I'd be interested to know if both of you were um, wanting to get into entrepreneurship when you started this or if it kind of started and then you slowly were like, yeah, this is actually what I want to do. So Simone, go ahead. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I'm Simone and I'm our chief growth officer. So my day-to-day is just super experimentative marketing and doing lots of tests. So I love my day-to-day. I think Nadia and I probably have very different answers to your question, Nicole, which I find 
super interesting. I think I always knew I had an entrepreneurial itch, I would call it. So I remember seeing kids when I was little doing lemonade stands. And I thought, what's going to be my unique angle to this. And so I sold banana bread for years on the side of the street. And that was sort of my unique take on entrepreneurship and got involved in a lot of orientation programming at Western, where I feel like it was my own mini company and team where we organized events for over 30,000 frosh. So I feel like I always had this itch to be my own boss in a sense. And get really creative at problem solving and figuring things out on the fly and being really adaptable. I love to work in ambiguity. And so I think it was a bit more of an obvious path for me than for Nadia. But Nadia, I love to always hear your story as well, because I find it so different, which is such a cool perspective. Yeah, I feel like Simone always knew and a lot of our team members also kind of knew they wanted to go into entrepreneurship, whereas I had absolutely no idea. Um, so I actually started at Western in music in a voice performance degree before kind of figuring out that I was interested in business and liked it. I always had some kind of entrepreneurial things, but I think I just didn't know that it was entrepreneurship at the time. So I remember throughout high school and university, I ran my own tutoring company and helped over 50 students in math and science. And um, I called it ACE. So I didn't really realize at the time that it was entrepreneurship. I just thought, oh, this is a fun way to teach people. And now being in it, I realized like the creativity you get in music, plus the business sense that I got from Ivy really is what entrepreneurship is about because it's having that creative freedom, that opportunity to be your own boss, like Simone mentioned, but also having that financial management and strategy experience. So I think it actually ended up being the perfect combination of my two degrees. Yeah, I, I, t I could only agree with that. Honestly, like, I feel like there's such a creative aspect to being an entrepreneur that often goes so unrecognized. Like if you are a creative entrepreneur, if you're doing something that's in the arts, then for sure people are like, oh, you're a creative, right? But I feel like all entrepreneurs have some level of creativity. Like you, you have to, because in order to think of great strategies for moving your business forward, in order to effectively market your business and do sales and like get out there promoting yourself, even pitching your business, like there's an art form to speaking about your business, right? I completely agree. And you're constantly reiterating as well. I think no business has survived and succeeded by sticking to the same thing they did in their first year or their second year of business. And so recreating constantly and doing it quickly takes so much creativity as well. Uh, how would you say then too, because I feel like a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this piece of like, constantly having to pivot. And I, I think you get into business thinking, oh, this is the dream. This is the vision and the goal that we're working towards. And then you get into it and you're like, actually, this isn't working for these reasons. And so we're going to have to like shift and do something totally different over here. So like that takes a lot of courage, I feel like to say, you know what, what we were going to start out doing, it isn't working. And so we're going to change. Where do you think that courage comes from? 
I think honestly, it's just from getting into the mindset of being comfortable moving quickly and testing and learning. So I remember when our professor was talking about finding that problem, I didn't realize that entrepreneurship was really about solving a problem. I thought, okay, you know, Shopify, it's just some cool big product or Facebook, they made this big tech platform, but really all of these different big businesses and success stories that we hear about start from finding that problem. And I know when we first started, we thought, okay, we need to perfect our product. We need to have the absolute best product prototype out there. And then our professors were like, no, it's about being scrappy. Like if you want to go purchase a hundred packages of lubricant, which we did do, and just like send it to people and get a survey and see what they think, that's your first step. And it doesn't have to be the most perfect product. And so I remember we were all perfectionists and we we're like, we can't send this ketchup package of lubricant to all of our customers. What are they going to think? But it actually came back with such good feedback. And it was from that experiment that we learned that we needed to make our product travel size, that it needed to be completely mess free. They didn't want it to be arts and crafts in the bathroom stall. And so we actually took all that feedback and it led to our product being better. So I think part of the courage comes from knowing that it's going to get better with this feedback. And yes, it might be uncomfortable to put something out there that's not perfect, but it really will be better in the long term for you and your business and for all of your customers. I'm wondering then, because you're talking about the little packages, you're talking about your MVP, like what did those early days look like for you guys? How, how does one start a tampon company? The early days were really focused on talking to people. We'd heard from other founder friends and professors and mentors that you can't just build for yourself. So you have to go out and test that other people are feeling this pain point. Because if you have that problem at the core of the business, you can pivot and iterate as many times as you want, but you're going to find a way to solve that problem. And eventually that's going to speak to people and they're going to put their money where their mouth is as well and really be able to rally behind the mission. So we did two different styles of interviews. We did a survey that went out to a really big group of people that was just online and they answered pretty much multiple choice questions. And then we also did a lot of interviews that were in person and you get lots of different kinds of anecdotes and stories from that experience. So I feel like we still refer back to a lot of that and we try to even pair it the way our customers speak in our marketing. So we copy a lot of the language that they used and we pretty much speak back to them with those same words. And that still resonates with a lot of our customers. So those were the really early days. We did a lot of kitchen counter experiments. I think Nadia mentioned that earlier of sending out samples. Um, I mean, we printed 20,000 boxes and we still have a ton of learnings even after we thought we'd figured it all out and so our next production run will be that much more efficient so I mean it's constantly a process but early days was a lot of talking to people and a lot of super non-glamorous stuff in the kitchen yeah the the non-glamorous piece I think is so relatable for so many of us right because we all think we're going to get into business and we're going to, you know, be building this empire and it's going to be so cool. And then you get into it and you're like schlepping stuff in the back of your Honda Civic, right? Or at least that was my experience. We have this incredible video of Nadia taking boxes out of her car of these postcards we were sending to our customers and the wind blows and there's a million postcards in these puddles in an enormous parking lot. And it's just one of those non-glamorous moments of here's Nadia picking up these dripping, wet, soaking, wasted postcards that we're supposed <laughs> to go to our customers. So we have a lot of memories 
from from those days but we also learned that people love to build alongside you so we've actually started to try and share some of those experiences memories videos document it for ourselves and others because people feel so invested when they know the behind the scenes of what it takes to build yeah I totally agree Nadia what did you feel on that day (laughs) It's so true. Simone and I try and always share and our whole team, like the behind the scenes and we say the good, the bad, the ugly and everything in between. And I remember I was with my other co-founder, Harriet, and I was taking it out of the car and it was just so windy. And I, in my head, I kind of knew this might be a bad idea. And still we took it out and it just went everywhere. And it was one of those moments of like, okay, we're just gonna keep moving forward. Just pick up all these cards. Yes. A couple of them are going to be wasted, but we have to keep going through it. And and totally, like you said, sometimes it's shoving a bunch of boxes in the back of our car when we're doing a warehouse pickup. Sometimes it's, you know, the non-glamorous things of just working from your desk, but sometimes it's super fun of going out and doing speeches and meeting with investors and traveling and being with a team and doing our photo shoots. So there is some non-glamorous stuff and some really fun stuff that the combination just makes it so fun. It's high highs and, and low lows. Yeah, it becomes really exciting, right? Because you're doing so many different things on a day-to-day basis. I had an experience where I had ordered boxes, like um, mailer boxes from a local box manufacturer. And I thought, I'll save on the freight. I'll just drive down there and they can load it up in my vehicle. And I wasn't thinking about the number, like it was like 5,000 boxes or something astronomical. And so I get there and I pull up to the the warehouse loading dock and they were like, cool, where's your truck? And I was like, oh, it's, it's literally my car that's like right here. And the guys in the warehouse were like, are you kidding right now? Like, we're never going to be able to get these boxes. So I like took half the order in my car and they were stacked up on my passenger seat. They were stacked in the back seat. They were in the trunk and they were so far up that I could like barely see out my rear view mirror to like, and I'm driving back to my facility being like, I really hope I don't get into a car crash right now. Like it's, you do what you have to do in the early days. Um, But I agree with you, like there's such a mix of that kind of stuff and then also such cool opportunities that you get as well, right? So talk to me a little bit about um, the manufacturing process, because I know that was something that you guys had to figure out in the early days is like, how are we actually going to manufacture a product? Yeah, I think that's something, one of those tasks that we just knew We had no idea where to begin, to be honest. And so we turned to Google. We did a ton of Googling. We had no network in the manufacturing world. And we actually ended up emailing a the producer of the machines that makes tampons, thinking that they were tampon producers. So we got in touch with the wrong person and they ended up giving us a list of people to contact. And so through this sort of network effect and I think of it as a spider web we got introduced to one person who introduced us to another and we learned a lot about being really clear in our asks um, listing out all of our criteria up front so we weren't wasting time with manufacturers that weren't going to be able to meet that criteria from the get-go so definitely I look back at the first email that went out sort of our cold email reaching out to manufacturers and the email we have now is completely different and there's so much more detail and we're really upfront about that criteria so I think that was a big learning and yeah just one person led to another to be honest but we had no network up front um and we just kept asking yeah keep learning right 
It's, I feel like so many entrepreneurs think that you have to know everything when you get started. And I feel like that's just not true. Like, even though it can cause a lot of anxiety, not knowing how you're going to accomplish this thing that you have in front of you, I also feel like it's okay to not know where to start. And just to like dive in and start with the first person that you meet, even if it's not the right person, it's kind of like, okay, can you introduce me to someone that is the right person? And then you start having those conversations and through those conversations, you learn so much more about the path that you're supposed to be on, not just in manufacturing, but like entrepreneurship in general, right? Definitely. And I feel like a big part of it is moving quickly. Like that's your advantage as a startup. And so if you can chat with two or three people that help you move that much quicker and get you closer to where you need to be, why not do that? And and like you said, sometimes it is a bit nerve wracking and you think, okay, I should be knowing all these answers, but if you can save time, and that was a big learning for us, making sure we speak to the right people, especially on the regulatory side to save that time and take advantage of speed. I think that's a big learning for us too. I think that was an big learning early on is we pretty quickly realized what we didn't know and that we had to hire outsource figure out a way to to fill in those gaps yeah absolutely like learning what you are really good at and what you struggle with and then bringing in people that have the skill sets that you need i think is so important it's so important or bringing in people that can help you learn those skill sets too right I think there's a lot of solo entrepreneurs out there that feel like, oh, I have to build a team because I can't know everything. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think you, I think you can build a team and I think it's really great if you do. I don't think you have to though. I think it's just either contracting out the work that you don't know how to do or leaning on people that can say, okay, you're not sure how to do sales let's figure out how to do this. Like, let's help you learn how to do this and to grow as an entrepreneur as well. Because there's going to be so many things when you start a business that you don't know how to do and you feel super uncomfortable doing. And then you kind of just have to like dive in and figure it out, right? Um, So speaking of diving in and figuring it out, let's talk about e-commerce. Uh, because you guys have a pretty substantial e-commerce presence and I'm wondering how you got into it and kind of what the early days looked like for that. Um, because a lot of people don't really realize how challenging an e-commerce business model can be. So what were some of the challenges you faced as you got into it? I think For us, one reason why we even decided to go into e-commerce was we wanted to find a quick way to get to market and just test and prove that there is demand for our product and and for our service and industry in general. And so that's kind of why we launched into it. I think one of the big challenges early on was understanding how to build copy and messaging that actually resonates with the customer. And that's something even to this date we're still trying to work through. We learned that it takes so many touch points with the customer. So I think we thought, okay, you know, we'll just put a TikTok out there. All these people will come to the website and they'll immediately buy. And I think we were very naive to think that because then we realized, oh no, we need to put out a TikTok. Maybe they need to join our email list. Then we need to nurture them through our email newsletter. And then maybe they'll see an ad and then they'll buy or they'll see us at a conference and then they'll buy. So it can take up to five to six touch points with the customer before they actually purchase. And so now we've gotten really good at understanding our overall marketing ecosystem. And is that, okay, what's our organic strategy? How are we also supporting 
supporting it with out-of-home ads and out-of-home experiences? How are we making sure that they stay retained in our community so that, you know, by that fourth or fifth touch point, they have that trust and that credibility to buy? So I think that was a big challenge was just understanding all the elements of our customer journey and especially having a stigmatized product like a lubricated tampon, making sure that they have the right information to feel comfortable making that purchasing decision as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like what you said is what everybody thinks. Everybody thinks like, I'll put out one TikTok and then we'll get tons of sales, right? And everyone that I know that has a successful e-commerce brand says the same thing. Like it's at the beginning, it's kind of crickets. And you have to find ways to like pull people in and nurture them before they're actually willing to buy. I totally agree. And then the other angle that we tried thinking about sort of, like you said, after we went through that phase of crickets of, okay, now how do we bring people in? We also wanted to think about, okay, people that are buying, how do we make it easy for them to champion the brand? And so we did a bunch of merch. So we have Marlowe totes and our, we gave a bunch of free ones out to our customers and we run into people in Toronto wearing our Marlowe totes. It's a conversation starter like this. And they say, people constantly ask me, what is Marlowe? And then we have other people championing the brand for us because there's only four of us co-founders. So how do we scale that? And likewise, we found it was a lot easier for people to share informational TikToks and blogs with their friends because it feels so helpful rather than transactional rather than just saying buy this product and so we saw a lot of our customers sharing blogs or helpful tiktoks with friends and that's how they spread the word about marlo so i think finding a way to get people other people to spread the word about your brand to their friends and really champion it is another really important part of that funnel that nadia is talking about about after someone buys how do you make it easy for them to refer others yeah, you really have to get that buy-in, right? You have to get that buy-in to what you guys are doing as a brand, not just the product, right? Because it's not just about the product. Like, I feel like, and again, Nadia, you mentioned the arts and crafts piece early on, and I was like, that's fair. A hundred percent, I feel like that's fair. Nobody wants to be going to the store and buying like a box of tampons and a thing of lubricant and like trying to make this work themselves. And that's why you guys are so unique is because you have a very quick and easy way to um, like utilize this product, right? And so I think that you have this great product that people can get behind but you kind of have to give them more than that. So I guess, yeah, you can both talk to um, why you feel like that's important to speak to as well. Yeah, well, first of all, we're always really intentional with the words we use. And we always say we're building a movement around menstrual wellness, starting with the first lubricated tampon experience, because we definitely don't see ourselves stopping there. And so we've always wanted to be sort of a one-stop shop and build that space and community really. And I think the most memorable messages that we get are definitely always people telling us that they felt broken, they felt unseen, they thought they were the only ones having a hard time with their period and having a safe space to ask questions made all the difference in getting off of that autopilot as well of just 
going with what you think is the only choice out there. So I think that narrative is just something that we're really, really passionate about breaking. And, you know, we recognize that everyone has varying experiences. And so we won't be, you know, our first product won't be the solution for everyone, but we just want to, in general, be big advocates for ask questions, find what works for you. If that's not our product, then hopefully we'll be building that product soon for you. Um, But if not, here's a community to point you in the right direction. So really, really big advocates for sparking conversation so that our community members can help each other out. And we always like to say that Marla was almost a person, like it's an older sibling that you can turn to that you can't be, you shouldn't be afraid to ask those questions that maybe you're a bit nervous about, but and like any question that our community asks us, that usually what drives our blog content or our social content, because we do want to be that reliable resource and figure. And I feel like a lot of times in the business world, people underestimate the power of brand and the power of it as a competitive moat. But if we think about some of the most incredible brands today, like, you know, Lululemon, for example, they do have great products and they're very high quality, but so much of their brand and their mission is being in the community, having really incredible yoga instructors who promote and wear the brand or even Apple. Yes, their products are amazing, but it's also that entire community around the brand and the ecosystem and being able to have your iPhone and your laptop and everything connected. So I think people need to remember that it's not just the products, it's the entire movement and community and having that powerful brand go alongside it as well. Yeah. So I heard that I think it's like 95% of all buying decisions are actually made subconsciously. So they're not made with like conscious thought and conscious choice. We all think that we're buying a pair of Lululemons because we want, you know, leggings that will last for a long time, or we want to look super cute or like whatever it is, whatever the motivation is behind that. But that's actually not the reason that we're buying those leggings. We're buying them because we have subconsciously like bought into that brand and we feel a sense of community and we feel like we belong right and so lululemon is a perfect example of that because it's a health and wellness community not just a pair of leggings definitely i remember mentor making that super visual for us and he said just scientifically when you take information into your brain it hits that emotional part of your brain before the the logical one so the information is scientifically hitting that emotional decision place first And then you're just going to look for information to justify the emotional decision you've already made. Yeah, that's absolutely the case for sure. So I feel like if you guys have created kind of this um, menstrual wellness brand where people feel like they're a part of your community, they feel like they belong, they feel like it's a safe space and they're heard, that's going to make them so much more inclined to, as you said earlier, trust you, right? And trust that you have a product that's going to support them in their journey towards menstrual wellness. Okay, so let's talk a bit about funding as well, because it costs a lot of capital, a lot of money to get a product business off the ground, and especially a product of this nature where there's a lot of regulations around it, and you really have to find a manufacturer. This isn't, you can't be making tampons in your kitchen, right? Um, And so how did you fund the business when you first got started, and how has that changed? 
So we actually raised a pre-seed round of $500,000, which we we're really excited about. And like you said, there was many different options, but for us, we knew that this was going to be a kind of expensive brand to build. We had to go through Health Canada and regulatory approvals, find a good manufacturer. So we knew we wanted to raise the capital that could actually allow us to achieve those goals. And so we did a number of accelerator programs like the Propel one at Western, Next36, League of Innovators, a lot of these programs showed us how to raise. Um, and I think a lot of times people think that, you know, we can just find whatever money is out there, but we really learned that it's important to find strategic partners. And one time a mentor told us that investors are almost like a marriage or a dating or a relationship. So you really have to make sure that you're finding the people that are going to help you strategically build your business in the long term. And so we are really lucky that we found those incredible partners in our pre-seed round. Now we're actually also raising a round of 1 million because we're now kind of scaling the brand. We use that money to get us through our initial milestones and we're very excited. But there's also a lot of non-dilutive opportunities as well. And that's one of the best parts about being an entrepreneur in Canada. We've actually won almost the same amount of money that we did in our pre-seed round. We won $400,000 in government grants, pitch competitions, um, different awards. And so really finding those opportunities, whether it's through RBC, TD, um, I Fund Women, there's so many incredible grant programs programs out there. And that has been a huge opportunity for capital, but also for building our network and generating awareness because they always put out press releases after we meet people throughout the competition. We meet other founders. So there's a lot of benefits to doing those programs in addition to the capital you can get from them as well. Awesome. Yeah. That's, there's so many ways, there's so many ways to fund your business. And I think it's hard when you first get started because you don't necessarily know about all the different ways to fund your business. Like I think most of us watch Dragon's Den and we think of, you know, investors, but we don't necessarily think of government grants right off the hop. We don't, I, a lot of people don't think of pitch competitions either. And you guys just recently won a pitch competition. Is that right? Yes, one of our big wins uh, recently was we traveled to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, and we were competing in the Global Entrepreneurship World Cup, where they chose different representatives from countries around the world. About 30,000 startups applied, and we got placed in the top 10, which was incredible, and we won $70,000 to grow our business. So it's you really can't underestimate these pitch competitions. Sometimes there's some really big opportunities, whether it's 10K, 25K, or, or something as big as this, as 70K. Um, so definitely keep an eye out for all those pitch competitions and and apply for them so how do you find those opportunities then because i can already hear my audience being like but where where do i find these I think for me, it's a lot of subscribing to different entrepreneurship organization newsletters and seeing them. So, for example, the forum was one that we participated in. Uh, Startup Canada has an incredible one. Um, League of Innovators usually has some cool ones in their newsletter that you can check out. Even on LinkedIn, if you follow a lot of these accelerators and entrepreneur support organizations, you can see them being tagged on LinkedIn and, and posting about it. Um, Founders Beta has a really good forum. I usually actually make it a practice every Thursday to go on LinkedIn. In, go on Instagram through my emails and just identify different pitch competitions. And we have this thing called our pitch and grant competition accelerator tracker. So we have a whole Excel and a whole thing on Notion where we track the progress of all of these. If one isn't open yet, we'll put a note or a reminder to say applications open this day, put it in our calendar, remember to apply. So we're actually very methodical about it. And we make sure that we can track, okay, when did we apply? When is the first round, second round? When do we actually get the money? So I would recommend that to everyone too, is almost make it a habit every week to look for these different competitions and track the progress of them on Excel and Notion as well. 
That's such a good way to do it because I feel like there are so many grants and opportunities that get missed just because you didn't know about it until the deadline had already passed. So if you do your research up front and you know, oh, these pitch competitions just closed, you could even put it in for the following year to say, I have to apply for this, this, and this on these dates, and then just make sure that you are on top of it and that you're doing it right. And they definitely get easier each time. Now we have a database of answers that we can keep going back to. And obviously we always refine it to the specific application, but the first few grants, I remember Nadia and I, feeling like, wow, this is a lot of work. We don't even know what our success chances are going to be. Is it worth it when there's a million other things to do to build your business? But once you've done a few, it gets easier and easier each time. So build that database of answers, and then it'll be such a quicker process for after the first few. Yeah, for sure. Because you're absolutely right. It's so much work to apply for grants. And I think people sometimes get discouraged. So that's such a good tip to like have sort of your set answers that you can go in and like tweak and adjust depending on the audience that you're speaking to. And around the discouragement, we've not been awarded grants many, many times and continued to reapply. And then we've been awarded the grants. So you just got to keep keep putting in the the reps and then eventually you'll learn something about the grant or you'll have grown your business a little bit further and you'll be a better fit for it. So don't persevere just like everything in entrepreneurship, I guess. For sure. You just have to keep going, keep putting one foot in front of the other. Right. So going back to um, you said that you had done a pre-seed round And so tell me a bit about that. Like, what did that look like? And how did you convince people to fund your business before you even had a product, before you even launched? Definitely. I think a couple of things is we need to understand how much to raise. And that was kind of a bit of a, no one really talks about how to figure that out. And one really tangible tip we got was try and raise for 18 to 24 months of cash runway, which was really helpful for us. So we looked at, okay, what do we want to do in the next year and a half? We want to place our product orders, develop our website, go through these regulatory approvals, mapped out an estimate of how much each thing cost, and then knew, okay, based on that, this is how much we're going to go out and raise and we're going to go for it and see what happens. And then from there, we had to get really good at refining our pitch, refining our story to show how is that money and that 18 months of runway going to actually allow us to build our vision, build our company and achieve these milestones. And so it's really about telling a story and taking all of those numbers and really showing how it all ladders up to that broader vision and that broader story. And for us, a big thing was also getting good at telling the problem for someone who doesn't actually experience the problem. So we were pitching to a lot of people who didn't necessarily menstruate. And so we had to say, okay, it's similar to, you know, putting to shaving without shaving cream or to putting in a contact without contact solution. And so for any entrepreneur who might be in an industry that's maybe complex, or maybe the problem is hard to understand, get really good at just simplifying the problem, finding analogies, finding customer testimonials that can illustrate why that problem is important and also find some stats to show how big is this problem because if you're going to go out and raise funding it can't be more of a lifestyle or a small business if you're going more of that venture angel route there are really other incredible opportunities for lifestyle or small businesses but for those venture and angel ones they want big scalable businesses so you have to show how is this a big enough problem worth solving that they should care about as well And the only thing I'd add is also at that early stage, investors are investing as much into the team or if not more than into the business. So 
you need to find what makes your team or if you're a solo founder yourself, just that special person to succeed in making this business. They've probably heard a very similar pitch to the one you're going to give probably a hundred times in the last three years that they've been listening to pitches all day long. And so I feel like often in that early stage, they're really looking for who, what person do I believe will be able to execute on that pitch deck even though the idea might not be a unique one. Yeah. I love that you both kind of leaned into this sort of more subjective piece of like, Nadia, you mentioned the storytelling and also shaving without shaving cream. That is ingenious. I don't know, like, I don't know if you came up with that idea, but that is ingenious because this is actually a problem that a lot of female entrepreneurs face is that female entrepreneurs tend to create businesses that men don't necessarily understand, but the bulk of investors are men. And so you have to be able to relay that idea and tell it in a story that men can understand, right? So I love that. And I love, Simone, that you were saying it's about the team and the person behind the business as well. Because I think that a lot of us, again, like Dragon's Den is the most obvious thing to talk about when we're talking about investing. That's what most people think of. And I think that people will oftentimes lean into the metrics and the numbers and try to really position their business as like, this is a great business for you to invest in because of these numbers and these metrics. And while that's important, I also feel like if you can't do that storytelling piece, if you can't subjectively make those investors feel something based on your pitch and what you're trying to tell them, it's going to be really, really hard for you to get investment. Yeah, similar to what we talked about around e-commerce, where that buying decision is emotional and then followed by logic. I think it's very similar in investing. It's um, a very emotional decision in a way, you know, in the entrepreneurship ecosystem, they talk a lot about creating FOMO. So some investors will just make an investment because they're scared of missing out because another really reputable investor has made an investment. So there's all of this emotional decision-making involved. And then of course, they're going to look for logic to rationalize that choice. And so then you need to know your numbers and there will be a follow-up meeting where they'll grill you on your finances and you need to know them well. But that first five to 10 minutes, I think it's really important to get that emotional buy-in. And a lot of the times people want to invest in areas where they can add value. And so if you have that storytelling element, if you have something that they're passionate about and that they think they can add value to, that's a big part of it as well. So thinking strategically about who has that expertise. And when we are talking earlier about the gaps that you need to fill, try and find investors or advisors who have those gaps and who can get passionate and excited about your overall mission and brand, as opposed to just the numbers and making it a strong investment decision. Nadia, that's a perfect segue to what I wanted to talk about next, which is how do you find investors, right? Everybody talks about bringing on investors and nobody knows where to find them. So how do you go about actually getting in front of investors? I think in a post-COVID world, networking has been incredible. Going to a lot of the conferences, um, even going on LinkedIn, I feel like a lot of times you'll be surprised at the amount of people you reach out to who are actually just willing to have a conversation, especially if you've shown you've done your research. You say, oh, I've seen you have these other companies in your portfolio, and this is how I would complement that or how I'm similar to those other companies. 
And a really big strategy of ours has also just been taking the no's and finding opportunities to get connected to other people. So if someone says, oh, it's not for me, I don't think I'm going to invest. I know a lot of other entrepreneurs might just say, okay, thank you for your time and move on. But I'm always saying, okay, thank you for your time. But also, do you have someone who might be interested in this? And here's a pitch deck and here's a blurb. And I make it so easier for them to just forward that along to someone else that it's almost impossible to say no. So it's, yeah, taking those no's and those connections in that time you're investing and finding them to allow you to build that spider web that we were talking about earlier and get you connected to the right person. And definitely making sure that you have everything in that email, the pitch deck, the video link, the blurb, that it's so easy for them to just take it and create that email and send it to someone else as well. Mm -hmm. And get connected to other founders because they'll give you inside scoop and gossip for lack of a better word of what investors out there are awesome to work with and which ones they didn't have a great experience working with. And, um, you know, we've learned from founders within our space and in completely different spaces as well. So I find having that, that network of founders, sometimes it's a little bit easier to get into, whereas investors are super bombarded with all these requests to meet and investors will often really seriously consider an introduction from a founder in their portfolio that they love. So if you're getting a glowing reference from a founder that they've worked with for years, that's an amazing introduction to an investor rather than just a cold outreach. So we we love our founder friends and we spend a lot of time catching up with them and learning from them. That That's such great advice, honestly, like incredible, incredible advice that I think a lot of entrepreneurs need to hear is that it's about the networking piece and the warm connections and making building relationships with people versus just getting in front of a group of investors and then presenting a pitch deck, right? Because I think that's what a lot of people see it as is, okay, there's this investor group. And so I'm going to send them an email and hopefully I can get in front of the investor group and I'll bring my pitch deck. And when you go about it that way, I feel like you have a lot less of a chance of success. Do you guys agree? I completely agree. And just our stats, we kind of track similar to the grants. We track how much outreach we do and how much is successful. And it's just night and day. The difference of how you get introduced cold versus warm makes a huge, huge difference. And we do monthly updates to a lot of stakeholders that we're interested in hopefully working with in the future to try and build that relationship and nurture it. And one of our mentors once told us that it's much easier to invest in a line when you've seen someone grow rather than a singular dot. So the goal is to create these dots that then grow and turn into the line. So when you say you're going to do something, they see you execute on that and they're going to believe that you're going to do that again and again and again, rather than just seeing you in a singular photograph one moment. Yeah, for sure. They have to see that traction and that forward movement, right? So on that note, how involved are the investors in your business? Because I think a lot of entrepreneurs hesitate to bring on investors because they feel like they're going to lose control of the direction of their business. We have investors who are involved in kind of varying capacities and from a really like legal technical standpoint, you can also define some of those information rights in your investment agreements. So if you're worried about it, you can say how many updates you're going to be providing the investors, 
what kind of statements they can expect from you, what kind of approval processes they get. But for us, we also like to, when talking about that relationship part, see how each investor likes to work with us and make sure that we're, you know, working in the best way possible. So for some investors, that's monthly calls, getting on the phone with them, seeing, having some kind of predefined areas that we need their help with that we know ladders up to their expertise. So we have some investors who are really, really good at marketing and we go in and we walk through our marketing strategy and we get their advice. Whereas we have some investors who are so good at finance and we go in and we walk through our budget and we talk about that. And so we kind of try and find those areas of expertise and to tailor the calls accordingly. Um, but there's some investors who just want, you know, a bit of a hands-off approach. They want those monthly email updates. They don't really need to get on a call unless it's maybe once a quarter, once every couple months, or if a really big major decision is happening, then they want to get on a call. So I think it's also important to understand that these are people at the end of the day and what are the best ways to work with them? What are their communication styles? And defining that upfront with them so that you can get the most out of the relationship and that it's beneficial and efficient for both of your times as well. Yeah, for sure. It's a relationship just like anything else. And like you said earlier, it's a relationship that's similar to a marriage, right? You have to make sure that it works for both parties and you have to be communicating in the ways that make sense to that person, right? So you mentioned the marketing piece, and I feel like I would be so sorry if I did not mention this because you guys have gotten such great publicity around Marlo. Um, so you guys have been featured in Girl Boss, The Kit, like there have been a number, Global, Global TV, there have been a number of places that have featured you. So tell us about publicity and how do you get the word out about Marlo? I'm going to be biased because we just did an event last week. So I'll start there. And then Nadia, you fill, fill in after. But we just did this super fun event where we invited press and influencers into a space. And we smashed plates and threw darts at balloons and just did this really cool experience that wasn't focused on the product at all. I mean, we had goodie bags at the end, but it was all about just getting the, the vibe of the brand across. and. A lot of the people that left that room after those two hours felt really invested in our story and in us as founders. And some of them happen to be journalists. So that's sort of one of the ways we do it. We really think of it similar to fundraising as relationship building so that when an opportunity comes up and there's an important piece of news that's relevant, the first brand they'll think of in our space is Marlo. So we love events for building those more meaningful relationships that are going to last a long time. But Nadia, I know you've done also lots of other strategies around press. So what would you add? I think a lot of what you said is completely what we do. But another thing is relationship building and looking at who is writing about your space. So if you have some other, like for us, women's health brands that we look up to, we look and see who's written about them. And similar to the way we build a relationship with an investor, we'll start to follow them on Instagram. We'll comment on some posts and suddenly our name keeps popping up and they think, okay, I need to check out this Marlo thing because I keep seeing it everywhere. And so I think a lot of that is creating those relationships, creating that storytelling element and identifying what are some of the big pieces of news that you're going to have to tell. So when we raised our pre-seed round, we prepared a whole press release. We had that kind of ready to go. We had built relationships with journalists for months before that milestone was coming so that when the time did come, we could send out that press release and have all the publicity that goes along with it. If we win a grant, we try and promote that and get the word out there around that. So it is about finding like a piece of news and there is some evergreen content that can just tell your story in general, but it's better to have that kind of notable moment that they can write about and share and show 
show that you're an expert in your space, that you're a thought leader, that they actually are credible when writing about you and about your brand as well. Yeah. Being newsworthy, right? Like having something to actually talk about that the press can get behind, I feel like is kind of what you're saying. And I think that's just a great way to do it because it gives them a reason to write about you, right? I think oftentimes we think about it from our side where we're like, we're so jazzed about something in our business. And we're like, of course, everybody's going to want to write about this and interview me and do all these things. And then you go out and people are like, no, I don't care about this. So like having those pieces that you can go to the press with and say like, this is actually a really cool moment for our business and get them jazzed up about it. And having already built those relationships, as you were talking about behind the scenes, um, I think is incredible. Definitely. And piggybacking off of other news. So if the government is of Canada is speaking about menstrual equity, then how do we offer a unique perspective or commentary on that since they're going to write about it anyways? Like you said, I think so many entrepreneurs pitch themselves to the press all day, every day that they're sort of like, I don't care about another company launching. How is this relevant to society or a really big thing happening in public policy? Or maybe it's a special International Women's Day series. How do you tie it to something else that is already happening that they're going to write about anyways? And then sort of your unique angle to that. And also being really organized about it, like from a logistical standpoint, similar to fundraising and having a strong deal room and having all the information available and ready to go, having a strong PR kit. And we have really amazing images that we've invested in that are taken by our photographer that are so beautiful and can complement our story. We have pre-written press releases. We have other articles linked in in that press kit where we show, look, we've already been featured in BuzzFeed, in the kit, in beta kit. Look at how they've written our story. So having that information ready to go so it makes it as easy as possible possible for them to write about you, then there's really no excuses. And they know, okay, all this stuff is already here. I'm looking for a piece of news today's anyways, might as well just take this since all the information is already there for me. Yeah, absolutely. Giving them every reason to say yes, right? I say this all the time about sales. Like when you're doing B2B sales, it's like if you can position yourself as a product that this retailer or this other business has been waiting for their whole lives, they just didn't realize it that's what's going to get them to say yes and so if you're giving them every reason to say yes and no reasons to say no it's kind of a no-brainer right um okay so one last question because i know we're getting close to our time here you guys are doing a lot you're doing a lot you've got your e-commerce um you have you're going out there and getting press you're raising money like there's a lot that you have going on how do you balance all of that and still look after your mental health as well I think it's definitely hard and it's something we're all working on. And I think none of us are perfect at it yet, but there's a couple of strategies that we've tried to implement. So I think for me, something that I do is think about what's the ideal way to structure my day to make sure that I'm the most productive. And so if that means for me, I love doing deep work in the morning, right when I wake up. So trying to book no meetings for the first three hours of the day and just get that done and over with, and then go into meetings and then even putting time in my calendar to go to the gym or to hang out with a friend or to have that outlet as 
well. So similar to how we treat a meeting with an investor, so important having a meeting with yourself and putting it in your calendar so that you're held accountable, maybe finding a friend to go to the gym with. I love to go to the gym with other founder friends that they have, we're both accountable and we're both trying to keep each other there. Um, So I think that's one strategy that we've been using. It also helps that we try and make our culture really exciting and fun to work with. So we're all friends and we start a lot of our meetings with how was your weekend and trying to create that space to be yourself outside of work and bringing in those hobbies because a lot of moments of inspiration happen when you're on a hike or when you're finding something in like your outside of work life that kind of brings that inspiration into work. And so we try and prioritize having those moments to find inspiration and creativity from other industries, from other brands, from other experiences as well. Yeah, I think something that this question makes me think of is just screen time. I feel like it's so easy to make even your breaks watching TV or, you know, everything ends up being in front of a screen for our generation. And so I try and just find forced zero screen time. So for me, that's a lot of time in nature. I love to surf. I love to hike. And you just, you're in the water. You have no choice but to be off your phone. And it's a form of meditation. My one friend told me because you're focused on the present thing. So it's not that traditional form of meditation, but you know, you can't be thinking about work in that moment. Um, So for me, I love time in nature and time away from screens to, to sort of unplug and do that self-care because otherwise I am so scared when I look at my screen time sometimes and it's part of the job and you know we do a lot of remote work and we love a lot of the perks of it we get to travel and we get to meet amazing people around the world because of our screens so I love it and I'm grateful for it but I just try and really find the time away from it as well so that I can continue to appreciate it yeah when you said like you're in the water and you have no choice but to like not be connected to your screen, literally I could feel my blood pressure lowering. Just even thinking, like imagining myself in the ocean. I actually had this issue today where I was like, I gotta take a break. I could feel myself like hitting a bit of a wall. And I was like, I need to take a break and just like step away from everything. And it's where I am. It's kind of like rainy and cold and not great out. And I was like, okay, I'm not gonna go outside. So what am I gonna do? And literally I reached for my phone and started scrolling. And I was like, I, I was five minutes in and I was like, how is this a break though? Like it's, this isn't a break because I'm on social media. I'm seeing, you know, different people doing different things and getting ideas and I'm still, my brain is still going. I think it really is important to have that like rest time for your brain to just like chill out. And like you were saying, you come up with your best ideas when you're away from your screen or away from work, right? And then having those safety people, I think, Nadia, we talked about this last week that we have those people that are stable and safe in our lives, friends, family, significant others, whatever it is, that because the startup world is so tumultuous, having people to turn to that you know are going to be in your corner and uplift you is just that nice sort of balance to how crazy startup world can be. So Yeah, I think who you surround yourself is really important. It can either add to your energy or drain it. And so just be thoughtful about that. Yeah, absolutely. Your community is everything, right? Your community is everything, especially in the entrepreneurial world where it's like people that are in that world, they just get it. They just Mm -hmm. get it. They get how hard it is. 
And so to have people there that you can relate to, I think, yeah, totally important. Um, okay, so this has been amazing. Um, if people want to learn more about Marlo, which I'm sure that they will at this point, um, how do they connect with you guys? How do they get in touch? So you can head to our website, wearemarlo.com, as well as our social media. Our TikTok is at wearemarlo or Instagram is at marlo. And a big thing of ours is we love to post the behind the scenes content, the fun, all the lessons, the learning. So even connecting with any of our founders, a lot of us post on our stories. Um, we have a close friends on Instagram where we post a lot of the behind the scenes. So you can DM us if you want to be added to the close friends list and see some of that fun, you know, storytelling behind the scenes as well. And if you ever have any like content ideas, if there's a blog you've been done, to see and you haven't found it yet messaging and interacting with our account and we have a lot of polls on our stories all the time so you can respond to them and submit your ideas and we always love meeting and connecting with our community so we're always open for a chat and for any ideas as well amazing i love that you guys are bringing it back to that community piece and saying listen we're all humans and we're founders and like connect with us personally even so many of our followers have become real life friends and it's so much fun. It's just such a perk of the job. That's amazing. Well, thank you guys so much for being with us today. I'm positive that the listeners will have gotten so much value out of today's uh, show. Thank you again. And um, yeah, I hope to see you guys all in our next session. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us, Nicole.